because people have provably false doctrines and that they hold to be true. Uh, people have contradictory um, things that they believe. So, so how can something? And I think what we'll find is that that faith, the the I, it's not the faith itself simply uh, that proves it's true, but it's like uh, one, and I've probably used this illustration before, um, that, uh, you know, if, if you get dared to walk across, uh, say, the Des Moines River, just picking a, a, a random example. Someone dared me to do that. Uh, stupid as it may be um, in the wintertime. Uh, your faith isn't what saves you in that sense. Uh, it is the ice being thick enough that saves you, but uh, the the faith in it is what gets you across it in the terms of that's what allows you to place the confidence in it. Uh, and so in that sense, I believe, is what it is talking about, that faith is the evidence of, of things unseen. That the practical application of the faith is the evidence. Um, so what when we look at this, there are some misconceptions about about faith and, and, and that. Uh, and one is that, uh, and, and you'll see this a lot in some of these um, uh, health and wealth people or, or what have you, is that, oh, Christianity is always beneficial in the short term. And that's not what this is trying to say. Um, in fact, um, there's another idea that Christianity is never inconvenient. Well, you must be doing something wrong if you're having problems. No, no. <laughs> any any reading of the scripture shows the Apostle Paul to be you know, numerous problems, or or uh, you know, look at any of the apostles, or even before Christianity, look at men of men of God who were thrown into lions' dens, or you know, uh, had all this suffering. God's way is frequently inconvenient. So so we're not saying that well, it will be proven to be true because it will be. Um, it will be easy, or it will it'll always work the right way, or work according to your expectations. That's not that's a misconception. Uh, the idea is that it will um, the benefit will be always observed in time. That there will always be the right outcome. So something might, in the short term, be seemingly better off. This one might get you more money, or this one might get you a better job position. You, things seem to be going better for me. But in the long run, uh, the evidence will be seen. It might be seen in, you know, it, in how you raise your kids, uh, and, or in how, you know, the, the long-term fruit of it will be eventually seen that Christianity is superior. Uh, so, I want to look at some some evidences of this, and the first thing is when we're talking about because we're talking about uh, the inspiration of the scriptures, uh, and one of the things that proves the Bible as superior, um, we can see in First Corinthians chapter one verse eighteen through twenty says, "For the preaching of the cross is to them who perish its foolishness, but unto us who are saved it's the power of God." Uh, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this world? Where hasn't God made foolish the wisdom of this world? And so, 
uh, what's the idea here? Uh, what, what is the, the concept concerning inspiration that God's bringing out? He's contrasting God's wisdom with the wisdom of the world, right? And so, one of the things about the Bible is, you know, when people say, well, the Bible's made up by people. The Bible would never have been made up by people. It's too counterintuitive. Right? There's too many things in it that someone would never make up. Right? Uh, if you look, there are lots of things in the Bible that, you know, people have come to naturally. Right? There's, if you look at Buddhist teachings, there are similar teachings in self-sacrifice and various things like that. There, there are, uh, there are intuitive pieces of knowledge, right? but there are too many counterintuitive ideas, things that just don't logically. They're not things that logically people come to, and that's what God's saying. God's saying, listen. Although the wise things that the, this world produces, God runs counter to them. Uh, so, so I'm going to look at a couple of them. So counterintuitive wisdom proves that it has to come from a source that's not human. Right? It, it, it doesn't come from God. It's, it's too opposite the way humans think. Uh, these are just some. The, I, I could write a list a mile long, you know. We could spend a couple classes on all the things. Uh, just run through a couple of them. Think of others more highly than yourself. <laughs> How do we, what, what's the way we refer to ourselves? Number one. Right? I mean, that, that's a phrase in our, our, our lexicon. Number one. Why? Because I think of myself first. I'm the highest. I'm most, uh, uh, the pronoun, at least in English, is the only pronoun that's capitalized. Think about that. We, we capitalize I. We don't capitalize you. It's <laughs> not that important. Right? I am important. Uh, it is counterintuitive to think of others. I mean, we could, we could go so far as to be equal. And that challenges some people's ideas. But to think of other people more important than yourself? That's not a natural, a natural thought. Here's another one. Do not store up... Very self-treasure. I, I mean, think about how many financial shows and radio programs, and, and I'm not saying that those things are bad, but but Bible emphasizes spiritual over physical, and that is simply not intuitive. That is, that goes against, I mean, everything that we think of because we can see it, we can touch it. This is has the appearance of substance. This is real. Job security is real. All those things that go with that, that that's tangible. But the subjective stuff, uh, we're not, we don't place nearly so, so much confidence in that. Um, don't trust the majority. Now, where does the Bible say that don't trust the majority? Well, one, in our text that we just read, talking about the debaters of the age, where, where are all those people? Right. Where are all those? There's all this common knowledge that's out there. Um, but remember Jesus said, broad is the way that leads to destruction. Right? Everybody's doing it. Everybody says this. And God says, no, the majority is almost always wrong. 
in, in terms of, you know, it, it's just how many times people have thought this. Oh, everybody says this. Everybody's doing this. And you find out, no, this is so wrong. Uh, so don't trust the majority. Turn the other cheek. What do we tell our kids at school? Stand up for yourself. Isn't that programmed into our kids? Don't take that. Hit them back. That's what's taught. We don't teach, turn the other cheek. Not taught. We, as Christians, have a hard time teaching that to our kids. We have a sense of justice and what's fair and what's right, and you don't take that from them. So that's counterintuitive. The heart is deceitful above all else. What do we hear about? I mean, what does the world teach about the heart? Follow your heart. Just do what your heart tells you. Intuition and all that. Our, our world tells us that your heart is the source of truth. God says, no, I ain't. <laughs> your heart will lie to you. You know, the thing I find kind of weird is <clears throat> in every civilization, they worship something greater, supposed to be sure. misguided than sure. they were. Yeah. They knew or felt there was something greater than them yeah. out there, some spiritual yeah. or whatever. Yeah. But yet, then when they followed it, that didn't come as more important as the stuff that you're t- talking right. about. Right. Sure. Yeah. It always right. interacted itself. Yeah. It all, and it was always. Really, in a in a way, it typically was combined with the worship of self. Is what ended up happening. I mean, you look at the right. the worship of the Greeks. I mean, it it was it was sex and drugs. Right. Uh, it was. I mean, the word wit, witchcraft in the Old Testament. You know what the word witchcraft comes from? It's the word pharmakos. <laughs> it's the word for pharmaceuticals. <laughs> I wonder what they were doing in their witchcraft. Mm-hmm. It's drugs. Uh, uh, so uh, it, it always goes to their worship always kind of reinforced their worship of self and God God says no nope, counterintuitive I'm not, my, the worship of me is going to be different from, from the worship of these other things you give up your life to save it what in the world that, that makes no sense in any natural there's no natural explanation for that no one would come to that um, on their own. Uh, the first will be last. Again, no. No. You've got a squeaky, squeaky mouse gets the cheese. I mean, that's, that's, that's what our logic is. No, the first will be first. You be humble and you be quiet and, and it'll come to you. No. That, that, that's too illogical. You are not saved by good works. Now, this seems to be a spiritual one, but but you think of in the sense of religion, every religion has a moral compass. Islam has a moral code. Whether they obey it or not is different, much like in Christianity or whatever. But Hinduism has a code. Buddhism has a code. Taoism has a code. There's, everybody has a code. And, and when you look at other religions, every other religion bases the results exclusively on 
what you do. Now, we understand that there's a concept of, of you'll be judged based on your works, obviously. But Christianity kind of separates those two things and says, uh, you know what, we're, we're, going to, we're not saved on those things. We're saved to do good works. Christianity separates us. No, you're saved for the purpose of doing good works, but you're not saved by works. The idea of karma, right? What's the idea of karma? We use that as a, as a idiom. What goes around, comes around. Okay, what goes around, comes around. Right? Those are all phrases that we have. It comes from karma. It comes from Buddhism and Hinduism, where, where you know, what you do in this life will, in the next life, determine whether you go up the ladder or whether you go down the ladder, you know, and then you, and your purpose is to work up until you get to nirvana. Um, and that's, that's, nirvana is when you're at one with the universe and all that nonsense. That, that's the concept of karma. What happens to you will somehow mystically go through the universe and come back to you and you'll get it, right? Um, and... Um, I guess there, there's an element of truth in that. You know, if you're rude to everybody, you're probably going to eventually get rudeness back. But that's more a direct. <laughs> it's not the universe doing that. That's just people reacting to your stupidity. Um, so, so, but God says, no, you're you're not saved by good works. That your good works don't determine uh, everything about your faith. Uh, you can do all the good works. You might not be able to be saved without good works. But the fact that you do good works isn't what determines exclusively your fate. That, that has to do with God. You can have all the good works you want and not be saved. So, so these and so many other. And if we went around, we could probably think of a a, a bunch of these that that you think of. And, and you'll read through the scriptures. You go, that's not really that's logical. We do that all the time. I don't really understand that verse. Right? We, if you read uh, any other holy book or any. They're pretty simple, pretty straightforward. That you know, there's no surprises. But you read the Bible, you're like, I wonder what Albert Barnes thinks about this because I don't understand this, right? Hey, you you look for someone that knows because this is above me, and so because it's counterintuitive, it goes against the way we think. Any thoughts before we move on to a different uh, proof? Hebrews twelve one and two. It says, therefore, seeing that we are uh, why did I copy this from the King James? <laughs> Compassed, surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which easily ensnares us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, who is the author and finish of our, finisher of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despised the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Uh, so um, the idea is that others have already proven this right and yet at the same time god says okay it's your turn to prove it why should i prove something that's already been proven Uh, we talked about um a couple of weeks ago we talked about francesco reddy who had proven that spontaneous generation was false and no one accepted it louis pasteur came along and did basically the same exact experiments and then everybody's like oh yeah like, that's already been proven. You know what? We have to constantly prove truths because people forget it or people don't want to accept it. And so we have to, in our own sphere, we have to constantly be proving uh, these things true. And other people have already done it. And that's, the, that's another great evidence is that, listen, 
you'll hear arguments against the inspiration of Scripture. You know, so many of those arguments were proven false in 200 A.D. or 300 A.D. So they just keep on rehashing these old arguments. You know, someone like Tertullian or Origen has already handled these stupid arguments. You know, two millennia ago. Well, we gotta have to keep rehashing these debates because there's always people that that want to um, argue against God. But others have lived their lives. It's evidence based on these. And he says we're we're surrounded. We're surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. Uh, and so I want to look at history and look at this cloud of witnesses and what has been done. And I want to talk about the societal civilization. When I say civilization, I don't mean it as a noun, but as a process. The, the process of civilizing humanity. Uh, uh, there's so many things um, that you can point to. Um, Galatians chapter 3, 27, 28 says, for, and then again, a lot of these are counterintuitive to people. But as many as you have been baptized into Christ to put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male or female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. This was counterintuitive then, so that people couldn't handle it. It's like, Jews, no, just for the Jews. The Jews are better. Way back then, God was saying, nope, equality. Equality. Male, female. Right. Who is the first witness of Christ's resurrection. A woman who was not legally admissible in court had it come to that. Her evidence was not legally admissible in court because she was a woman. God said, I'm going to pick a woman to be my primary testimony and the men aren't going to believe it because she's a woman. God was already in the equality game long before it was you know, popular. Long before humanity came to it, Paul wrote a letter <clears throat> to Philemon and said, you know, I realize there's a law and it's, you don't have to, but I would prefer that you freed Onesimus. God was already not in the slavery game. There's passages in there about the law and obeying the laws. Like, listen, this is the law of the land, then you have to obey the laws of the land. But understand that God doesn't like it. And people miss that one. So God was already in the equality game. Um, what's the first disagreement in the church? What's the first problem in the church? Circumcision? Of Equality. First problem. Two groups in a church. There's the Jerusalem Jews and then there's the Greek Jews. Those are the converts. Or, or maybe Jews that had been raised outside of Jerusalem. <coughs> and so God, how did God deal with it? Already established an administrative group and try to oversee this equality process, the, the deacons. The deacons' first job was to maintain equality. That's the first job. Right? God is already ahead of it. Uh, so the next, uh, the next thing in civilization, 
uh, with social services. James 1, 27, yeah. Um, and, and this kind of goes along with that same event. But pure, it says, pure, uh, pure religion and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit the father, fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Um, kind of interesting that um, in the Roman era, the, the civilization, the modern culture uh, of Rome was at this time really concerned with bread and circuses, the entertainment aspect of things, right? And you've read about that. All the, the entertainment and going to the Colosseum and having the fun and the theaters and all that stuff, the culture. Meanwhile, the church was actually building hospitals. This is documented in history. They were setting up orphanages across the Roman Empire. They were providing for people's needs. And as a result of that, even though they were persecuted frequently in many areas, they were growing so rapidly. The thing that made them grow was the connection to humanity. Uh, and there are a lot of places that they considered certain people lower so that they didn't need to take care of them. They shouldn't take care of them, in fact. If you go to India, it's still the same way. The caste system. We don't take care of those people. Why? Because their they, karma has brought them to a lower caste. They don't deserve it. They've been bad in the previous life. And you look at all the world's views on things, and God says, no, 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 we take care of the lowest of the low. That's who we're paying attention to. It's so, again, counterintuitive. Everything is counterintuitive, um, and yet it works. And we see that those societies, now we finally, we're so civilized now, 2,000 years later, we're so civilized that we've finally figured out social services. God says, God, <laughs> I was 2,000 years ahead of you. Um, and even in the Gen even in the Jewish world, not even in the Gentile world, they considered. Uh, you remember the man born blind? Who sinned that this man might be born blind? They had the same thought processes as was they had in India. It's an old ancient superstition. Um, and God says, "No, no, I'm going to challenge the way you think." Um, I just wanted to update my information. I was going on old information, so I, I went through Forbes. He, they put out a list of the top 100 charities in the world. So I just kind of went, scrolled through them. There's, you know, some that are, you get a lot of, they're government charities and things. Um, you know, like United Way is probably the biggest one. Um, and a lot of government monies and, and things like that. Uh, but of the of the charities, the top 100 charities, they are the vast majority of them are either Christian or started Christian, like the Red Cross, I and mean, it's kind of not necessarily that now, but either started Christian or Jewish, uh, like the Beth Israel stuff in New York and various things like that. There are some secular. Uh, there is one cult one, the Shriners. It's the only one in the top 100. But there are no Muslim charities that are in the top 100 in the world. There are no Buddhist uh, or Hindu charities in the top 100 anywhere. 
as evidence of the the theology that they have. But yet Christianity, you see Christian charity after charity after charity in the world. Why? Because it works. Because this philosophy, this principle has a practical application. It works. Um, talk about literacy. Um, this is a man by the name of John Wycliffe. Uh, actually, all of our pictures of him are just guesses, and someone worked off of one picture. Uh, the, there wasn't a picture drawn of him until about like two or three hundred years after, so he probably looked nothing like this. <laughs> anyway, a uh, British guy, uh, he translated a Bible into common English, actually even before it was written in high English. He translated it from German for the English people, for common people to read. Well, to do that, you kind of have to have a common people that know how to read, which they didn't largely. And so began the literacy of the lower English people um, with, uh, with the Bible. This is, I don't know if that text is visible or not, but these are Cyril and Methodius. They are brothers. Um, and they were from Greece, and they went to what is now Russia or Belarus, that, that area up there, and learned the language. Uh, and they wanted to give a Bible. The problem is that they had no written language. Uh, the Russian people, and this is in the 800s, had a language, but it had no alphabet. It had, they just, it was, they were so uneducated as a people that they just learned the vernacular. So the language is constantly changing. There was no rules to it. There was no grammar to it. There was nothing. So they learned it. They gave them an alphabet, and they gave them an alphabet specifically for the purpose that they could give them a Bible. And this is not the only language like this. There are numerous African and Aborigines and various languages like that that have had a written alphabet specifically for the purpose of the Bible. And so throughout the world and throughout time, it has been the Bible that has civilized people as far as literacy has been the largest, um, most significant influence on literacy has been the Bible. Um, I just find In that the interesting. last 2,000 years. Well, I mean, literacy, literacy, what is the last 2,000 years? Well, I mean, they, they prior to that, there's, there were places that had alphabets, but... But the Jews had the Torah and all, and all that, and so that was... Oh, sure. That that I mean, there were there were written languages. There there always been written languages, but but it's been as far as the number of people on this earth that that read or do things. It's it's largely been through history the Bible that is that has done that. Um, not because the only even in those even in those places like we say like even in England where they did have an alphabet, it is the common people didn't read. They, they they couldn't, and it's not until in fact um, uh, let's see where did I have that um, yeah before we move on to the next point I, I thought I had this in my notes uh, so persecution in Rome went up and down it wasn't always constant and and Christians started getting administrative positions until like the last fifty years before Christians were freed they had. Uh, 
the, the persecution started again. And so the emperor, I think it was Diocletian or one of those, kicked all the Christians out. Well, when he did that, he kicked all the literate people out. The regular Romans weren't literate, so they filled all these positions with illiterate people, and the government just went, it just collapsed. A lot of the social services and stuff that had been established in the first 200 years of the church just collapsed uh, because they kicked all the literate people out. Uh, and again, we see the evidence of, of Christianity. And talk about education. These are all major universities in the world, earliest ones. Um, some of the ones you are seeing are uh, the University of Bologna, which is the first university in the history of the world around 1080. Um, I don't have all the dates of them. Oxford, Salamanca, Cambridge, Paris, and then in the United States, Harvard, Princeton, Yale, were all started with one express purpose, and that is to teach people the Bible and to train missionaries and to train preachers. Think about how far we've come. <laughs> Where those are the seats of atheism, in most of them. Uh, so, in education, uni the concept of university was there because of the Bible. Uh, what other, I mean, think about the, the purpose of higher education originally was not to learn calculus and not to learn all these things, but it was designed to study a man's words. It's just the evidence of the fact that those words means something, that we know that we need to set up universities to train people what these words mean, what these statements mean. It shows the depth and complexity. Um, I got these out of order. So anyway, uh, but as we talk about literacy again, the Gutenberg Press in 1450. Uh, now we know that this is not the first printing press in the world. The Chinese had a version of it. Uh, theirs was inferior. Um, to the Gutenberg Press, and theirs really didn't change the world. Uh, no one knew about it until later in the world. This is the first book printed, was what they call the 42-line Bible. There were about 160 copies or something like that made of the Bible. The first book ever printed uh, on a movable-type uh, printing press like this uh, was the 42-line Bible. And it has outproduced every book every year since 1452, when, when, when this was finished production. It took them about two years to get the production of this Bible done. And there has never, ever, ever in history been a book that has been more produced in any single year. Your bestseller list, one, top ten bestsellers, nope. Those are top two through eleven. <laughs> the Bible is number one every year. That's the power of that book. Um, so uh, I want to talk. I want to finish with two things here. We got five minutes. I want to talk about the emotional benefits. A couple, a couple of things because the Bible says, "Taste and see that the Lord is good." Right. You know, there's a certain point when we come down to it where all the things that we've talked about, all the facts, and we can talk about facts and science and archaeology and all these things we can talk about. And it's always, it comes down to like what we opened with. It comes down to faith. Faith is the evidence of those things that we've talked about. Do you have confidence 
in the archaeology? Do you have confidence in all of that stuff is proven in whether you live it or not? Taste and see. At some point you have to make a commitment to live life based on these principles and that, no matter what evidence we have, is going out on a limb. I still have doubts. How many times have I preached this and how many classes have I prepared and and there's still, you still wonder. I'm like, I wonder if from a million mile view, if there was someone looking out and seeing me, would they go, my goodness, you're so wrong. (laughs) You have no idea. Yeah, I I still wonder what that million mile view looks like Um, because it does take faith at the end of it. He says, taste and see that the Lord is good. You know, I always use the illustration. You know, I could sit here with an ice cream cone and describe to you in every detail how sweet, how what the flavors were. And it means really nothing to you until you taste it yourself. You have to taste it yourself. And that's what, it, that's what we open with. You know, you, the, you, the great cloud of witnesses that lived it and experienced it that's all they are to you is a great cloud of witnesses until you prove it for yourself. Until you join that crowd and you're a witness for somebody else. That means nothing. I'm just a witness. Just another person's testimony. Um, just another statement from history. But the first one that I want to talk about is peace. Um, you know, prior to the influence of the Bible, nations were constantly at war. Go back and look at, and it's not that everything's wonderful and happy all the time, but you just look at how often borders changed and borders changed back and forth and back and forth. And you look at, since in history, as Christianity has gone through the world, our maps look more and more the same from one decade to the next. What's happened? There's a civilizing force in the people, not necessarily the governments, but in the general people, there's a there's an elevating, that civilization, that, that peace. People are kind of living on a higher concept. Not everybody. So there's still turbulence, and there's still people that don't accept it. Um, but there's generally more peace than there was. Um, crime in the ancient world was scandalous. Um, the, the sexually abhorrent behavior, it was so pervasive in all of those societies. Um, and yet, as the Bible increased, superstition has faded. Um, we still have holdovers in our lexicon, knock on wood, and all those things, but, but all the superstition and, and all the turbulence of those societies is gone. Um, as Christianity has spread, uh, the nations which adopt it and live it are, more, are the stable ones in the world. Where are the unstable, violent countries? The ones that don't have Christianity. That's, that's where you find the life that you would not want to live and where you would not want to live. <laughs> And the last one 
is uh, hope. <clears throat> this is a man by the name of James Lane. Um, he's a preacher in Hartford, Connecticut. Um, I know him uh, somewhat. Not I mean, He knows my mom a lot better than me. But uh, In the 60s, he was a black Muslim. Very violent man. Angry, inner-city, black youth. Uh, from Hartford, Connecticut, and he's now a preacher in the Church of Christ in Hartford, Connecticut. And the reason he is a preacher in Hartford, Connecticut is because he found himself in prison. And he said, in the 60s, there was only, they, we didn't have libraries in prison in the 60s. You had one book in prison. And if you wanted any entertainment, you read that book. It was the Bible. And he said, I knew the Koran. I read the Koran. That's why I was a violent man. I mean, I was a violent man because of the way I was raised, but but that that Koran fed my violence and my rage. And he said, uh, then I read a Bible. And then I read the Bible again and again because I was bored, mostly. And what I started realizing, without even really knowing it, was the amount of hope I had never really encountered hope before for my life. And he said, he called up a preacher. I, I don't know, I think it was a guy by the name of Fred Miller, who I know. I, I can't remember who it was. Uh, who was in New York City at the time. I don't know if that was who placed the Bibles there or wherever. And uh, he was immersed in the Christ in prison. Uh, got out uh, and went to Bible college. <laughs> Uh, that is the power of the Bible. It changes people and it gives hope. And there is nothing else in this world that gives genuine hope and changes people's lives. And that, that's really the most powerful. And it's, it's, as I say, it's not as dramatic to, to talk about it in, in some regards as, as the excitingness of an archaeological discovery. Like, wow, look at you're looking at something that's 5,000 years old or whatever. But... It is the most dramatic, and it is the most convincing thing, and it is really the thing that will convince people that you're around. Most people that you're around are really not going to be interested in science. They're not going to be, but they will be interested in the way that you touch them, um, and the change and the answers to life's problems. Any thoughts as we close? I'm wait. Is that? I can't tell that time. Is that? Ten forty-four. Okay, we are over. <laughs>